This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. This is part two of a two-part series on the end of democracy or threats to democracy. Last week, we were uh, doing the show with Terry Goddard, the uh, podcast of which is available at KTAR.com. Uh, our guests this week are Paul Johnson and Chuck Coughlin. Welcome, guys, to the show. Nice to be back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Essentially, uh, the impetus for this was uh, a Bill Maher editorial uh, that we played last week. I'm not going to play it again, but the core of his argument is as follows. Three points. Point number one, Donald Trump will run again, which I think, barring health concerns, is an inevitability at this point. Point number two is Republicans uh, will nominate him. Uh, I I think also a fair assumption, given that everybody in the world seems to want to run, but everybody is deferring. As long as Donald Trump doesn't run, they don't want to offend him. And his point three is the day after the election, he proclaims victory regardless. And... uh, you know, if we look at this last election, uh, I think it, it's fair to say that uh, the integrity of this system was upheld by a number of Republican office holders who were secretary of states or election officials in a number of states who refused to succumb to pressure. And what's going on right now is an attempt to purge a lot of those folks from the system. So uh, I'll go to you, Paul. Tell me what's tell me what's wrong in that analysis. How did we preserve democracy given that state of affairs? Well, there are two separate questions. Uh, first, is the analysis correct? I, I think it's very likely it's correct. Um, the uh, you know it's impossible to know what obviously the future holds for us, but it's also clear that there are lots of sociologists, lots of different people who are. Uh, beginning to believe that we are on the verge of losing this and that we are rushing headlong into it. Um, I do think that there is a difference between the law and norms on this. Uh, In terms of the law, the Constitution, the courts, uh, it seems like, you know, the institutions held up very well over the last four years. Um, In terms of our norms, our norms are significantly changing. Uh, and people that, you know, I knew as kind of the old guard in the Republican Party, many of them are gone. And certainly the backbone and bite they used to have and the willingness to stand up uh, to people, oftentimes even in their own party, as we had here with John McCain, that that uh, resource is in short supply today. You need two parties who both want democracy and the republic to work if it's going to survive. And right now, I'm, I'm not sure that we have it. In fact, I'm not sure that we have that completely in the Democratic Party. Um, I think there are a lot of people who put what they want, their, their, their demand for what they want out of our government, ahead of whether or not they support free elections, ahead of whether or not they believe uh, that we ought to have to work and listen to people who oftentimes we don't agree with, because if we don't, the republic will fail. By the way, uh, and I'll go to check in just a second, I will offer by way of perspective, uh, our guest today, Paul Johnson, is a independent former Democrat. I think, Chuck, you are an independent former Republican. Am I correct? That's correct. 
Uh, Unaffiliated voter. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I agree with the analysis. The problem with Republicans is they lose. Um, that's They keep ceding ground, um, and they will continue to cede ground in particularly in Arizona if they continue down that path which is you know a cult of personality around Trump and a rejection of um business minded republican ideals uh and a triumph of um individual you know libertarianism uh and they will continue to lose elections um the challenge that we face as Paul just said is and this isn't the first time this has happened in our country, right? This has happened a number of times. You know, we had a big civil war at one point. We've had riots before in the 60s over civil rights. Um, we've had massive um, uh, civil unrest over who gets to vote, you know, granting women the right to vote. Uh, we've we've gone through this many times before. The difference this time is that it happens at such rapidity with social media that it causes all of us to like look and go, oh man, is this going to be it? Is this going to be the end of it? And there is no guarantee that it won't. It, that it that it that this continues on. Um, and what I think Paul and I have observed uh, is that we have an election system right now. That promotes this behavior. We're actually getting exactly what we're buying because we have a, a closed primary system that only Democrats and only Republicans can win it, can run in. Um, you can vote. You, you can vote. But as there's a there's a closure to that is that that promotes extreme partisanism because partisans um, shuffle to the edges of those parties, both sides. And you elect 80% of the candidates who then succeed in office, then move on to office. That's our analysis. That's a real number with a third of the electorate at most participating. So we turn around and we go, oh, well, what happened? And we're like, well, that's exactly what we're doing. And so there are ways to remedy that, but it's hard and it will be hard because we will be fighting against both of those parties. And against the entrenched interests of those both of those parties, Paul mentioned the extremism on the left. We know, we you know Trumpism is the extremism on the right, um, and we see the struggle like Kirsten Sinema is having in passing a bipartisan infrastructure bill because the 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 partisans on the left are extorting her to say, well, we need to do something more than that, much more than that. Well, that's not how Joe Biden got elected. Joe Biden ran on a very bipartisan, you know, promise to unite America. Yet the agenda that's stopping that agenda is the partisan interests that dominate the Democratic Party. You pointed out correctly, and I think this has always been the case, or at least in my lifetime, that the tendency in primary elections is for the more extreme candidates to prevail. There was a constraint on that, however, in the past, which was we had a healthy number of moderate voters who were persuadable to one party or another and often held the this way and who would win an election, yeah. now it increasingly looks like there is little or no middle left and that the way you win elections is to activate your base. Well, the and Paul can, will comment on this. My comment on that is um, the narratives of both parties are reactionary to each other right now. You know, Ted Kennedy famously said back in the day, 
you know, the Democratic Party has to be more than the the Labor Party. It has to be more than the Women's Party. It has to be more than, you know, the the party of uh, minorities. It has to be it has to be a party of citizens. Um, they're not. I mean, th- that that's exactly what's happened with the identity politics movement. It's not united. It pushes apart. And and that narrative, which you elevate individual groups rights over the common good. Um, I'm not defending the I'm not saying the country has in any way not been guilty of all types of sins, but we've always been on a trajectory of bringing people together and remedying those over time, not at a pace that makes many people happy, but it does happen. But that narrative, which is ascendant in the Democratic Party right now, is exactly what Donald Trump is playing to the right of how, well, you know, they're not Americans. You know, he is playing off of that theme and there is no middle ground anymore. Well, the fundraising for both parties is all about the horrors of what the other side is doing. Absolutely, because that's who turns out in the primary. That's what motivates the system. And it's big money. It's big money is now involved because control of politics dictates big money. And so it, you're, you're in a very we're – we're at a crossroads. We're at one of these crossroads where we're going to have to figure this out or maybe it doesn't go on. We'll be back in a moment when we continue the discussion, the future of democracy with Paul Johnson and Chuck Coughlin in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back with Paul Johnson and Chuck Coughlin. I want to ask you a question, Paul. Thinking about the Republican side of this, last week uh, we talked a lot with Terry Goddard about the Democratic side, but you've got pretty good connections, Paul, into the the business community, which leans Republican and historically done so. You now have a Republican Party that is increasingly a cult of personality to Donald Trump. You don't run for anything without expressing fealty. I got to believe that a lot of those Republican business stalwarts are just uncomfortable with this. At the same time, our tax cuts going to be enough to keep the business community in the Republican fold? Because there seems to me to be a discomfort there, or maybe I'm wrong. Tell me about that. No, I don't think they will stay in the Republican fold. And to be honest with you, I think the the, the new organized Republican Party doesn't want them. Um, you know, it's been a while. We've been, we've been watching this happen. I can recall when they used to call them the uh, illegal labor lobby. Um, you know, there's, there's been an evolution where people inside the Republican Party are increasingly moving to the point that they really don't want business, free enterprise um, to be a part of it. And you could see it certainly over the last four years with the anti-trade talk, the anti-free enterprise talk. The business community feels very uncomfortable with that. They, For the most part, most business leaders, you know, they were born in uh, within the last 50 years, maybe 60 years. And they believe in things like civil rights, human rights, equal rights. They just also believe that free enterprise and business are important as well. And they feel like they're without a home today. I do think you're going to see an increasing amount of independent candidates that start to run. I think that there are a lot more people who are beginning to register as independents. In terms of how to fix it, I think what Chuck was talking about is exactly the starting point. We have to change the way that we elect people because today 
it's it, it is magnifying the effect that extremes have in both parties. But, you know, candidly, I, I think the media plays a role in this as well. I was thinking about last week, um, you know, I, I watched, turn, I, I was home, I was doing work, I turned on CNN, and uh, for a whole week, uh, I'm watching the stuff going on with the hearing on uh, breaking into the Capitol. And, and I don't want to say that breaking into the Capitol wasn't important, but, you know, it was show after show after show talking about what was going on, what was happening with Steve Bannon. And, and it's terrifying. It's just terrifying. At the exact same time, we are sending a spacecraft into outer space with four citizens being paid for completely by private dollars. That just gets a glimpse of, of, of the of media time. Now, here's something that not only is a significant event, but when I was growing up and that space shot was taking place, it was on all four channels. You watched the takeoff. You listened to specials about the astronaut. You heard about how the transitions had taken place, what was going on inside of, uh, inside of NASA, all giving you hope that there is something special about this country. And so it gave you the ability to ignore Richard Nixon. The only thing we hear about 24-7 is Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. Is it any surprise why we're all divided? What's the good news? Who's inspiring people? Now, now we've lost our elected officials to it. Somebody once told me, in fact, Pierre Salinger, that John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan was the same person. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I was 29 at the time I'd actually gotten to meet with Ronald Reagan. Pierre Salinger was there. And I thought, how how can you say that? And looking back, it's so obvious. They both had an optimistic view of America and what we could do. They just had a different approach to trying to solve the problem. Now the view is there. It's not necessarily a view of we are the best. You're being bombarded by messages, by the political parties, by candidates, by the news media about everything falling apart. I think that drives people further into their corners instead of inspiring them and and recognizing this is still an amazing place to be. It's an amazing place to live. There's no better time, no better place in world history to be than right here in America right now. Well, Paul's right about that. I mean, that if it bleeds, it leads. They lead with conflict all the time, and they love the Twitter. I mean, that, Donald that, Trump, by the way, is a, a that's a newsroom saying. Yeah, you know? that's yeah, right. Yeah. And it and and you know, Trump's Twitter feed ran the country. I mean, literally, that's what ran the news cycle. They took Twitter away from him, but now everybody else and those supporters are are there. And they're angry because there's no definition anymore. There's no commonly held definition anymore of what it means to be an American. We're debating that right now. That's what's going on, a cultural debate about what it means to be an American. And somebody needs to grab that narrative. But that narrative, when we talk about that politically today, it's war speech in a primary on either side. It's a cultural war speech that gets elected, not a cultural unifying speech. Most of the electorate now is unaffiliated, and there's a two, you know, there's a little over a third of the electorate is unaffiliated. More people have left. You know, there was an exodus of the Demo- from the Republican Party in, um, about the time of the insurrection, and now, but Demo- there's more Democrats leaving the Democratic Party now since then than have left the Republican Party. 
So there, there is a disconnect. We can see it with the cinema struggle, you know, that, that she is confronting um, the progressivism of her own caucus, uh, and they chase her into the bathroom. It would, it would help if she said what she wanted. Well, I, I, I get that. I get that. But I also understand tactical negotiations in a legislative setting. Mm-hmm. Keep your mouth shut. Tell people who are leading the effort what you want. Don't play it in the media. Mm-hmm. She's not playing it in the media. And people want to drag her into that culture right now. And she's refusing with great discipline to be drawn into you, you that You think culture. she's told leadership what she wants? Absolutely. I think uh, Schumer knows, and I think, uh, and it's not a, it's not big. They don't like it. They don't like it at all, and they don't think they could probably meet that goal. Well, we're going to find that out in the next couple of weeks well, if they can meet that goal. They're going to live with that, or they're going to live with something close to that. That she may have to compromise a little bit that. upwards. Well, and but, the thing is, I saw, I saw a piece. Here's the here's the sexism of the piece today in the New York Times. Mansion, they're promoting Mansion as you know. Well, he's, but what is she? There was a style piece on mansion, you know, or on on cinema. Can a woman not? Can't she be that? Can't she be an equal um, uh, vocal opponent? And he's from West Virginia. She's from Arizona. So you know, th- there's sh- they're both not going along with the progressive movement. Okay, let us leave it at that, and then let them negotiate that. You know, the I found it interesting that their criticism of her was and of Mansion. You are a Republican. Now, that to me is interesting for this reason. We got to go to break. Well, where's yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're over time. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll let you pick up right after the break. Paul, Paul Johnson with uh, Chuck Coughlin. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are continuing part two of our two-part series on uh, the future of democracy. A reminder, last week we had initiated this conversation with Terry Goddard, and that uh, podcast is available at KTAR. Right now, Paul Johnson, we cut you off uh, due to the uh, uh, non-negotiable demands of commercial radio, which is we had to go to a break. Uh, If you want to pick up where you left off, please do. You know, I'll just take my experience because I, I sympathize with uh, Kirsten Cinema. You know, when, when I grew up, I grew up with heroes like Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy. They were people that made a difference to me, and I became a firm believer in human rights, equal rights, and civil rights. Um, I became mayor. I worked with firefighters and police officers, uh, with people who worked on sanitation trucks. I, I believed in the functions that they were doing, trying to make government better. Um, at the same time, I firmly believe that the way that we pay for those things is to have a robust business community. The stronger the business community is, the more money that's provided by the economic engine to be able to pay for the social programs and the social needs that we have. Now, to me, they're just connected. But what I know and what I knew back then was that there was a group of people, which is now identified as progressives, who hate profit. They hate it. They think that it is an evil term all by itself. And effectively, they believe that the way to solve problems is through government and not through private sector means. Now, increasingly, that's become kind of the Bernie bros, the people who are on the socialistic side. They have no room in the party for people like me. So where do I go? I don't fit in with them, certainly. 
And at the same time, I am not a Republican. I think Kirsten Sinema is facing the same thing. Her values are clearly Democratic values, at least as far as I'm concerned. But and, and certainly on the social issues that Chuck was talking about a moment ago. But because she doesn't buy in 100 percent, the answer is they, the one thing they hate more than infidels are heretics. <laughs> they hate people who aren't willing to buy the orthodoxy, the dogma. There are only two parties. There are only two dogmas. There's no big tent. You must buy into the orthodoxy. And my answer to that is I would never surrender the entirety of myself to one political party. I just wouldn't do it. Well, and so the only answer is become an independent. Yeah, I think uh, uh, I think last week uh, it was Martin Luther's birthday. You know, he, <laughs> you know so it was a uh, it was a good opportunity to express. You know, okay, well maybe we don't all fit in these nice little boxes anymore, and those institutions aren't representing us. As Paul said, becoming an independent is is a powerful message. But the challenge with that is the system doesn't treat you equally. Because both parties, you can vote, but you got to choose their ballot. You got to choose their ballot. And then if you want to run as a candidate, you can't run in that primary. You could run in the general, but by that time, the election's over because everybody's so polarized on both sides. Even though it's only 30% of the electorate, those, that portion of the electorate de- uh, determines the debate because they've set the war zone up. I'll ask you, Paula and, and Chuck, you, you made an earlier, Paula, a, a comment about, well, in, there's independents run. I haven't seen them. Are, are there any credible independents that are on the landscape offering themselves I up can, for election? We, we've had some like out it. here. We've had some. We had Dick Mahoney a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, we were just looking at this the other day. Bill Scholes. We had Bill Scholes. Now we're going back forty yeah, years. We're going back forty years. And, and a weird situation where he was going to be the Democratic nominee, and then well, he then, was he, no. It was Carolyn Warner in the old school Phoenix Boys didn't want the woman to be the cousin. Yeah. So, yeah. so they ran against her, and so you know that's ancient history. But there's been more recently. But um, there was a legislative candidate to or that ran in the last cycle and got badly beaten even well, though they were you point out the, the rules I mean while there's a, almost a third of the electorate identify as independent the rules are massive well, and, ta- and our no. taxpayer no. dollars spend no. we pay for those elections even though I an independent can't run in those elections I would argue that's not right. Yeah. That's not right. If they want to have an election, I've talked to some people who are really, you know, much brighter than me about this. It was very enlightened at the time of state our statehood that we had op- we had primaries in the open. So we because they didn't want to have the smoke filled room. So they called for a public election of a prime uh, a primary where candidates could run, get signatures and run. And so that was looked at as enlightened reform, uh, progressive reform, which Arizona entered the union as. But the primary itself, by virtue of social media, has become the smoke-filled room. It is the virtual smoke-filled room now where people have to genuflect to those powers, intellectual and political powers that be, unions, um, very progressive interests on the left, and very... Uh, neocon, uh, maybe racist, maybe uh, all kinds of ill effects on the right, 
um, that are just a reactionary force to what's on the left. And so if you don't genuflect to those altars in the primary, well, you can't win the primary. So it is a virtual smoke-filled room that our primaries operate in now. It has to change if we want the country to survive. I want to ask you a question, Chuck, that, that Paul answered earlier, which is the business community and the Republican Party. What, what's that relationship now and where, where do you— It doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist because um, unless you want to pump a massive amount of money into their coffers on one particular issue, um, such was APS's strategy several years ago to buy the Corporation Commission races, didn't turn out well for them at the end because it was became exposed. too big of a too yeah, big yeah, of an right, exposure. Yeah, yeah. But they don't care about your issues. So here's a big issue that we're working on right now. The Prop 400 extension, that's the half-cent sales tax for Maricopa County that we've done for 40 years that's built all the freeways, bought all the right-of-way. It's why we have a great regional freeway system. In 2004, we finished it. We built a regional transit system as a result of that. We cannot overcome very uh, two objections politically. One is the the conservative rights objection. I don't even want to call them conservatives. They're they're not. But they object to light rail. It's not even in their districts. It's not who they serve. It doesn't. It's not the way they they get served. And then a, a, a this is viewed, even though it's an extension, as a tax increase. It's an extension of an existing tax. So they all run away from it. Well, that's not – our polling numbers show that 70 percent of the electorate supports this. But we – you can't operate in a one-majority one caucus, one-seat majority caucus that Republicans dominate because it even gets harder. Well, if it even gets more, more partisan when there's only – everybody becomes their own king in a one-vote uh, caucus. Well, if you start out with an ideology that I'm against all taxes, period, don't there even want go. to know what it's for, then right. then I then well, I don't want to extend anything that exists. Yeah, yeah, government yeah. is corrupt, right, Mike. Right. Government's the enemy. Right. <laughs> government is the enemy. Well, I mean, that was, that was Ronald Reagan's contribution to taken our debate. Taken out of context. Out of context. Yeah, Not sure. Taken out of sure. context. But, but, yeah. It, but Ronald Grover, Reagan, you Grover know, couldn't Norquist, get elected now, but but, you know, but the, his reinvention is Grover the, Norquist the, yeah. is the apostle of that yeah. now. He's yeah. made a whole career out of that. He came and attacked Jan Brewer, the most conservative governor we've probably ever had in the, in the history of the state, to uh, when she came out in favor of a temporary sales tax to bail the state budget out, and he excoriated her for it. But it was He's a, a coward. brilliant <laughs> way to put it in that. In the abstract, none of us likes taxes, but we separate that from the discussion of what is it. We all like what taxes, generally what the taxes do, yeah. but we don't want to pay the taxes. Yeah. So if we talk about the taxes, people are against them. If we talk about you know, any and, no, and, a long and, number of social goods, we're, all, we're for all of those. And you find that government public approval of cities, political mm-hmm. leaders in cities, much higher than political leaders of the state well, I, let, let, and much higher than the uh, than federal because garbage water sewer fire police all come from your local we government. and we understand that if our garbage doesn't get picked up we know and let me ask you about Paul to, to to talk because you were you were mayor I I and, and our by the way our polling on our cities always very very sky high yeah. polling of state government legislature is Lower. horrific I look at what the differences are I say number 1 
Paul, tell me if I'm right on this. Number one is you don't have party caucuses. Okay, people are elected. They're members of parties, but uh, they don't caucus by party. And number two, you're dealing with a relatively small number of people that you deal with on a face-to-face basis, seven or nine council people, as opposed to 100 legislators. Paul? Yeah, I would tell you it's a couple of things. It definitely starts with the election system. You know, when I ran for office, both I ran as a city council person, as a Democrat back then. Again, I'm an independent now, but it was a, about a two-and-a-half, almost three-to-one Republican district. Um, I knocked on every door. I listened to people. I knocked on Republican doors, Democratic doors. That had an influence on how I thought later. But the uh, I couldn't have gotten elected in that process without it. And the fact that I was still in a district that was very Republican meant that I had to spend more time listening to them. Most of my legislative counterparts, you know, they would go run in a Democratic primary or Republican primary. The districts were so gerrymandered that by the time you were done, everybody already knew who was going to win the race. There are very few real competitive seats in the legislature or in Congress. And so for the most part, they'd only go knock on Democratic doors or only go knock on Republican doors. And then they'd win. Well, that begins to skew their perspective. Then they get to the legislature and they work in caucuses where the extreme tends to beat on the people who are in the center promising to primary them if they don't go along with exactly what their agenda is, which is kind of what's happening to Kirsten today. It's a bad system. It doesn't foster ideas. It doesn't foster the ability for us to think. It it, it fosters uh, buying into a dogma. So there's a great book out. I'd encourage everybody to read it that's concerned about this. Uh called The uh, American Soul or something to that effect by John Meacham, great historian, talks you know, soothingly about how the fact that we've, great we've done this before. It's, it's a lesson we all need to know. We all need to acknowledge. And then the only thing we can do now, I was talking to my two good friends about this the other day, is the only thing we can control is our own behavior. So don't participate in that. Just ask them, well, what's making you so angry? Why? And then have this conversation that we're having here. Social because media sucks you in. It's you know, hard. I said to people, I said, don't be in relationship. Uh, I said, create, be in relationship, not on Facebook. It's an awful place. Not on Twitter. Not on Instagram. Go actually be in relationship. Paul and I have known each other for 30 years, we started, we really got to know each other well when we were in a fight, literally a fight on a basketball court when I was working for Grant Woods. Paul's an okay guy. (laughs) So Paul's an okay guy. We've come around to seeing better ways about this. So I appreciate, you know, being here and talking about this. But there is a way. There is a way. There will be a lot more discussion about this in the future, hopefully. There's a great organization uh, called Unite America that's looking at these types of things on a national level. We have people here in the state that are doing it, and hopefully there will be some coalescence around those. Thanks, Chuck Coughlin. I know you have to go. Paul Johnson, we'll be back with you in just a moment. Final segment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are back. We're back with Paul Johnson. And uh, we're running through, we did in the break, Paul, we ran through some scenarios that really 
Uh, bring us back full circle. The, you were painting a picture of what could happen in the next election if some folks who are in charge of uh, of running elections and counting votes uh, are beholden. I wonder if you could talk about that. Well, I think that, you know, the point is that it's not hard to see now in looking back that if in Michigan, Arizona, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Virginia, a handful of key, any one of a number of key states would have just simply had the elections board saying we can't call the election because there's fraud. It would have went to the House of Representatives. Had it have gone to the House of Representatives, Trump would have won. Now, my own opinion. Oh, because is, by the way, because it's not to the House. It's the it, if you if they don't certify, it goes ultimately to the House, and it's one vote, one state. That's right. And because it's one vote, one state, there are 26 states that would have voted for him. 24 that would have voted for the other, more than likely. So understanding that that's true and understanding that we haven't gotten better, right? The, certainly there aren't more Republicans willing to stand up and bow their back for free elections today than there was even on that day. As seats begin to be filled, if, you know, if governor's races turn over and you have Republicans who begin to take over them, and if they make the decision to place those people on those boards, you could get to 2022 where, just as Bill Maher said, it doesn't matter whether he wins or loses. He declares victory. And if you get a handful of states, if he did lose, that just simply can't certify the election, we have a problem. We have a huge problem, not just in that election, but with the republic altogether. Consequently, I think there are, you know, I think this is an ideal time for people to run as independent candidates. Um, I think it's an ideal time for them to run because one, that 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 center is opening up and it's getting bigger. I think there are more people who are really looking for people who, especially in, in positions like the secretary of state, but they're looking for people who all they're going to do is count the vote and that they're going to be fair. And they're not going to, they're not going to project on onto either side, but in the governor's race, I think that is true as well. Now I wish Chuck were still on because Chuck would tell you all the reasons that that's difficult, but I'll give you a couple of them need twice as many signatures. Your name's always last on the ballot if you're an independent. Um, it, uh, you have no real brand uh, because you don't have a brand. It's very easy if you end up making a comment that sounds a little bit goofy for people to think that there's something wrong with you because you don't fit into the norm. Um, but at the same time, there's also not a realignment going on in the country today. There is a disalignment that's going on. You know, I, I happen to think that in many cases that it may actually be the independent candidates that save us. Now, what we know from independent candidates in the past, um, Ross Perot, Teddy Roosevelt, they didn't win when they ran as a third party candidate, but they did change the debate. They did change the debate to get the two candidates to talk about issues that the public cared about. Um, and I think certainly getting the public to talk about or to getting candidates to talk about they're not going to manipulate the elections. They're not going to interfere in them. It's going, it, it should be at the top of the list for what we're concerned about. I think if you want a measure of what somebody's going to do, there's a very simple one. You ask them who won the last election. And if they, I agree. If they're not willing to say what is patently obvious, that Joe Biden won the election— and you may not like that, but he won the election fair and square in a very clean election. If you're not willing to say that, then you're signaling what you're going to do in the next go round. And the perfect time to ask them that is when they're in a primary, because once they get into office, what's their first concern? Winning the next primary. 
and if you're a Republican, at least in the current environment, you uh, you look at the lineup of candidates and you say, ask them the question, who won the last election? At best, you get fuzzy answers. Well, there were there were some pro- they don't want to they, they may be too embarrassed to say that Trump won in, in the face of facts, but they say, oh, there was this fraud or that fraud or or I have questions or something like that. You know, I watched Cheney the other day, and, and it wasn't, I don't think it was lost on many Americans that, you know, here's a conservative. She's pro life. She's a hawk. She, you know, she's a fiscal conservative. You almost couldn't pick an issue where she isn't a conservative. Now, the one issue. That's about as strong a conservative as exists. That's, I agree. And, and, in, uh, and yet, on this one issue that the election wasn't stolen, not buying into the big lie, and saying Donald Trump is wrong for saying that, she's being ostracized. She's lost her committee assignments. Um, she is, she is, I, I, I know she understands she's now putting herself into a position where she may lose her primary. She may not win. What I love about her is what she's saying to the rest of us is that there are some things more important than just winning the next election. There are some things more important than that. And if I if, if there's any message that I hope that would go to many of her Republican colleagues, some of which I know who are very, very good people, it's that there are some things that are more important than just simply winning your next primary and, and preserving this great thing that we inherited and being able to hand that off to our children should be one of them. The Republic itself, the Republic is it's in danger and the whole objective right now in my mind is save the republic it's worth it that's a very short list of people who are willing to do that short list today i agree i mean in in our own state jeff flake in effect uh, did that he recognized the writing of the wall that uh, he was unwilling to in effect drink the kool-aid and he knew that that made him unnominatable in a republican primary and so he so he retired but it really wasn't voluntary. Yeah, I, that, he, he understood exactly what was taking place when he was making his comments. And my answer is bravo for, again, there, there just isn't, in my mind, any bigger issue. You know, I, I do believe that if we gave voters more choices than simply the two choices that uh, they have today, that we would be in, in much better position. Now, unfortunately, uh, the way that the parties approach that is that you're going to be the spoiler. If you run as an independent, you're a spoiler. And my answer to that is that sounds awfully entitled. That sounds like you believe you are so entitled to a single shot into limiting the amount of choices that a voter has that you simply can't see the forest through the trees. The bigger issue here is if you give people choices, oftentimes people move towards the center and the center can hold. I don't think the center can hold today. I, I think what we're watching in the Republican primary, the political art, uh, article that you sent out, the center is not holding. That may be, that may be the, that the, germ, the germ of an idea for a possible solution. Thank you, Paul. We're, we're out of time. Uh, if you want to contact me, MikeO'Neill.org is the website that has a link to email and social media. And thank you, Paul Johnson. We'll be back next week in the Think Tank. 